0: The gut-brain romance is a way to explain the food-mood connection, and guess what? The power is at the end of your fork. Dr. Uma Naidu. So the big question is, how do women over 40 like us keep weight off, have great energy, balance our hormones and our moods, feel sexy and confident, and master midlife? If you're like most of us, you're not getting the answers you need and remain confused and pretty hopeless to ever feel like yourself again. As an OBGYN, I had to discover for myself the truth about what creates a rock solid metabolism, lasting weight loss and supercharged energy after 40 in order to lose 100 pounds and fix my fatigue. Now I'm on a mission. This podcast is designed to share the natural tools you need for impactful results and to give you clarity on the answers to your midlife metabolism challenges. Join me for tangible natural strategies to crush the hormone imbalances you're facing and help you get unstuck from the sidelines of life. My name is Dr. Kieran Dunstan. Welcome to the Hormone Prescription Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hormone Prescription with Dr. Kieran. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are talking food, nutrition, and mood today. Three of my favorite topics, maybe yours too, who doesn't like talking about food, how it can be better, tastier, more nutritious, and support their health, and mood, how they can be happier, more joyful, and live an expanded life. We all want those things, and maybe we're not getting the nutrition information that we need at our doctor's offices, because the truth is over 80% of us doctors just aren't trained in nutrition. So you're kind of left to your own devices to try to figure it out, and that's just not cool. So my guest today, who's a medical doctor trained in psychiatry, she's a nutritionist and a trained chef. She's gonna help you put all the pieces together so you can eat the right diet that supports your body and your neurotransmitters and your mood, and move towards the brilliant health that you deserve. She really has a unique background and perspective, and I love how she puts all these pieces together, so I'll tell you a little bit about her and then we'll get started. Dr. Uma Naidu is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and nutritionist, professional chef, and nutritional biologist, and the author of the national and international bestseller, This Is Your Brain on Food. Michelin-starred chef David Bouley described Dr. Uma Naidu as the world's first triple threat in the food and medicine space as the nexus of her interests have found their niche in nutritional psychiatry. She founded and directs the first and only hospital-based nutritional psychiatry service in the USA. She's the director of nutritional and metabolic psychiatry, at Massachusetts General Hospital and Director of Nutritional Psychiatry at the MGH Academy while serving on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. She served as a regular media contributor at CNBC and is on the Harvard Health Publishing editorial advisory board. She's been invited by the World Economic Forum to consult on their New Frontiers of Nutrition initiative. After being one of only four U.S. physicians to be invited to meet personally with HRH, the Prince of Wales, she was asked to collaborate with HRH and the UK College of Medicine on a public health brain food project. She is currently developing the first and only CME-based educational program at Mass General Hospital and Harvard to educate other clinicians globally about nutrition for brain health. Dr. Uma has appeared as a nutritional psychiatry expert on Live with Kelly and Ryan, Today Show, 700 Club, ABC, and been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company Thrive Global, Harper's Shape, Parade, Boston Globe, AARP, and more. Please welcome Dr. Uma Naidu to the show. Thank you, Kira. It's lovely to talk with you. You as well. And I don't think we can talk enough about this gut-brain connection. I love your unique perspective and the way you describe it about our being a romance because it's so true. And you have a very unique perspective because you're trained in psychiatry, nutrition, and you're a chef. So can you share with everyone how that came to be? How did you be, come to be trained as a chef and get trained in nutrition after getting your MD and being trained in psychiatry? It's a long story here, but I'm happy to share
1: it. It mostly starts with my childhood, you know, loving food, coming from a family that wanted to eat healthy, but also had a focus on science because there were a lot of doctors in my family. But where it really changed for me was when I was, Studying in medical school, I felt no one was talking about nutrition. And then when I began psychiatry residency, it was a question we were not asking patients while prescribing medications that, as you know, have huge metabolic and other side effects. So I just felt it was a gap. And these pieces started to come together for me. I started to look into the research. I really had a pivotal moment with the patient. Who kind of yelled at me because he thought I had caused him to gain weight from Prozac, but in fact he had already struggled with his weight. But he was, you know, he was drinking this massive cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And when I asked him what he placed in the coffee, it was, you know, more than a quarter cup of processed kind of junky creamer and eight teaspoons of sugar. And I understood what a big aha moment that was because he was actually able to understand the empty calories when I explained it to him. And I understood, therefore, that one had to really understand, interpret this information In order to make a change in someone's behavior, because when he understood that these empty calories were causing him to gain weight even before he'd eaten breakfast, he realized how powerful that was. My training in being a professional chef was largely related to my love for food, but Julia Child was my food hero. (laughs) <laughs> and I discovered as a, as a young uh, resident uh, getting through my exams and studying and all of that, and I watched public television in Boston and there she was, you know, dropping her omelet and doing all sorts of things. But I, I really followed a lot about her life and realized that she went into cooking much later in her life. And I thought, well, I love to cook. I feel I can make a difference with this. Why not me? And I just really followed a passion, but it came together. In an amazing way, and I feel very fortunate for this, where the it was almost a nexus of these different types of training that came together in my work in nutritional psychiatry, when I was really supported at the hospital where I work to form the first clinic in nutritional and metabolic psychiatry and start seeing patients in a way, a defined way addressing these problems to help their mental well-being. So as I said, long story, but the high points were that aha moment, which really led me down a path of how can I bring this message to more patients and help them with healthy habit change so they're actually sustainable and they feel they can buy into.
0: Yeah. I don't think that many people understand that. I saw somewhere, I think it was on your website about that we've really got to get that you are what you eat. And I, I know that we say that all the time, but we, I think still have this perception that somehow we have our body and then we feed it these different fuels and then your body uses or doesn't use those fuels. But I heard someone describe it this way. And I also saw an image that went along with, the description, which really impacted me so much that I want to share it, mm. that really drew mm-hmm. this home. And it was a human and their body was made up, you know, the shoulder was broccoli and the other shoulder was a side <laughs> of beef and, you know, all the parts right. of the body were all the different foods. So there was nothing else. And I think that we don't really get that we break down the building blocks of the food and then yes. we recreate a structure out of that and so literally when you look in the mirror is you're looking at a your food body it is made up of food right. and therefore it programs everything including your hormones and your neurotransmitters which are brothers and sisters they're just different yes. sides kind of of the same coin so Most psychiatrists don't get this connection. I even share publicly on the podcast frequently that when I was very unhealthy and weighed 243 pounds, one of the problems that I had was depression and anxiety for no reason and was on five psychoactive medications. And when I discovered this new path of addressing the metabolism and I went back to the psychiatrist, I had gotten off all the medications and I said, you know, I'd like to help you understand the connection here. He wasn't interested at all so yeah what what made you it sounds like you had this epiphany but it sounds like you also had some understanding of this connection that most psychiatrists don't have so what is that what are the steps in that connection that helped you really get that depression anxiety mood disorders mental health problems Mm -hmm. are to a very high degree determined by what we eat well firstly I love the image that you shared because I think to your point,
1: Kira, are doctors but specifically psychiatrists are not thinking about the whole body approach. They're thinking or many of us think about psychiatry or mental health as about the neck, when in fact food is and many other things affect our entire body, our body as a whole. So whether it's the you know, the shoulder, the, the broccoli in the shoulder or the other foods, they actually impact everything. For me, it was a combination of knowing that there was this gap in nutrition education and that I was being asked to prescribe medications that were so devastating while they were life-saving. The flip side, as you have lived and you have lived this, which I think is very powerful, is that it, it affects your body. And then you suddenly have an uptick of anxiety and depression, and it's almost like you can't catch that cycle. But it also went along with the emerging science in the last decade and a half of the gut brain connection the the research that has been going on understanding that there's these trillions of microbes that live there that they affect anything from our vitamin production to our hormones and their sisters the neurotransmitters and you know there's this whole effect and it started to unfold for me the connection between food and mood and by mood i mean you know anxiety and other conditions in mental health which is what i break down in my book called this is your brain on food Mm -hmm. it looks at the different mental health conditions the foods that actually support through the gut brain connection support that condition and the foods that are actually really harmful to those conditions and i think that for me alongside this emerging research understanding that food was more powerful than i had initially imagined i just thought of it initially as a gap that you know we needed to be talking about and educating more about but then the science of the gut brain connection happened and i understood that these pieces were starting to make sense and people were starting to talk about mood and food and that's where where it became more powerful to me and a path that i decided to follow I think that people don't realize the gut and brain arise from the exact same cells in the human embryo. And with the vagus nerve acting like a two-way text messaging system, you're absolutely right whether it's those neurotransmitters that they're working on. But then, you know, even with the neurotransmitters, people don't realize 90 to 95% of the neurotransmitters like serotonin are made in the gut and the receptors are there, which is why when someone is prescribed something like Crozac or Zoloft, which are fluoxetine or sertraline when they prescribe these ssri medications the first thing that they have is gastrointestinal symptoms or side effects and m- many patients experience that this is also you know best explained by the location of the receptors and the receptor production so Even those little things start to fill in the picture. Do I believe medications are important? They've actually saved the lives care of many of my patients. But can we and should we also be looking at lifestyle, nutrition, metabolism? managing, it's not so much about the weight loss as much as affecting our metabolism in a positive way that then starts to make a difference in how our hormones um, act, in how our neurotransmitters can work. And it's sort of, uh, you know, I like to think of the gut gut brain ecosystem as this like grand central station where everything kind of, you know, goes through through this mechanism. That's where hormones and neurotransmitters so closely work together as well.
0: Right. I love that you described that journey. And I've seen in some studies where they've tried to determine the educational content of nutrition for physicians as being that up to 87% of us have basically no nutritional education. And I think that most patients look to their doctors for advice on this. And you know, what was the advice we used to give, we were taught to give is eat less, exercise more, which really isn't right. Oh, you know, if you have hypertension, yeah, you know, cut
1: back on your salt. But it's 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 so new and more nuanced than that, right? And and people, you're absolutely right. This is something I faced in my life as well, where we're expected to give this information, and patients naturally turn to us. But we're really not equipped. I think the it's only like twenty percent of medical schools in the U.S. have enough education in nutrition. And yet, on the flip side of that, uh, Kira, you know, a study also showed that eighty-eight percent of Americans have some form of poor metabolic health. So most of us are walking around with something that's impaired. We may be functioning, you know, we may be otherwise okay and healthy, but because our food and our food system is really laden with the Western diet, the standard American diet called sad for a reason, we're mostly consuming foods that just contain so much sugar.
0: Right. And I love this quote that you shared with me, Before we started, the power is at the end of your fork. So I know that there's somebody listening who's on an SSRI or an SNRI right now who probably isn't thinking when they raise their fork throughout the day or their spoon, whatever they're eating, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that's where the power lies to affect the neurotransmitters and your mental health is more what's at the end of your fork correct exactly and and you've picked up on one
1: of my favorite quotes i'll often end lectures you know academic lectures and say you know the power is at the end of your fork because people again don't make that connection people will tell me patients even my colleagues will say oh my goodness you know i needed that extra cup of coffee today And I felt I needed more sugar in the afternoon. So I was at the vending machine or I went to the hospital cafeteria for a cookie or whatever it is. But they don't put that connection together with what they've eaten, what they've eaten in the last 24 hours, or even their pattern of eating. And I call that body intelligence because if we start making that connection that mind-body connection, and we start putting it together. We'll start to realize the things that are exhausting us, the foods that are not serving us. And, and no one eats a perfect diet. None of us, none of us does, especially me. So it's about finding that balance. You know, eighty percent of the time, tapping into that body intelligence, and twenty percent of the time, you know, you may be traveling, you may not have been able to, you know, make that healthy dinner. So you, one has to find. We, we, I think, we each have to find our path forward with eating better for our mental health. And that's where the power is at the end of your fork.
0: Okay, yes. So let's dive into the gut-brain romance. I love that you say the gut brain romance is a way to explain the food mood connection. So we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast from various perspectives, but I'm wondering if you can share, because I think probably most patients, yours are like mine, they don't get this and they think it's kind of an an aside like, oh yeah, we'll eat better and that'll help your mood. And and I don't think most people take it to heart and really get it. So how do you explain it to people? people and the people listening so that they really get that this is an issue they need to address. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it comes back to what we said earlier about these two organs originating in the exact same cells. And so they are uniquely connected in our body. And then they remain anatomically connected by this vagus nerve, our 10th cranial nerve. And, you know, like I said, it acts like this two-way text messaging system all the time. But on, if you take that to a deeper level, the, there are these, there's this gut brain ecosystem. They are connected. And then there's the foods that we eat. So the moment that we consume something, and I like to think about it this way, on days that you know we're having a good day, we might be eating that healthy salad with all the healthy fats and and deliciousness and the colours that you know making up for biodiversity that gets fed to the gut microbes because we're eating different foods rich in fibre, different plant phytonutrients, healthy fats, healthy proteins, and they're being digested. So. The breakdown products in the gut microbes in that interaction are healthy products like short-chain fatty acids, and that's actually a good day in this romance. But there are also days that we kind of reaching out for the fast foods and we're eating more of a standard American diet, and, and we when we're tapping into that, there are also, as with any ecosystem, bad microbes in the gut. When those microbes get fed and they love sugar, for example, They love unhealthy fats. You know, when they get activated and they take over, that's a bad day in the romance because when they take over and they get fed by those foods, their breakdown products are toxic to the gut and toxic to the single cell lining of the gut. And over time, what they start to do is create toxicity, create inflammation, create problems, and ultimately dysbiosis in the gut. This romance is really meant to help us understand that you know, just like a romance, you have good days and bad days. So, with the gut, you have these days as well. And it's meant to help guide people. Like I said, we're not perfect, but at least more days than not, reach out for the healthier foods because that's what's going to keep that balance, that homeostasis in your gut. And we know right there with the microbes, our hormones are interacting, our neurotransmitters, our vitamin, you know, our sleep and circadian rhythm is affected. It's such a large component of everything in our body that the message is meant to convey that we we need to pay attention to that
0: okay so that would get me on board if i were your patient and (laughs) what information might you give though there's so much because doctors were not trained in this so we don't give advice people are on dr google trying to find answers and i'm sure you're aware of you know People who basically are lay people who have a coach certification or something like that and then go online Mm. and say that they're an expert and you should follow the carnivore diet and here's why, or you should be vegan and here's why, Mm. or you should be vegetarian or lacto-vegetarian or pescatarian. So yes. how do you help people sort through all this nonsense? Because I'm sure that some people listening are confused and they hear eat healthy, but that might mean one thing to one person and another thing to another person. So how do you help them cut through and yeah. focus yeah. on what's correct? I
1: think you know, it's super important to understand that we, we as physicians really do have to, have to help people cut through the noise. And, you know, between the diet wars and the food di- food dilemma that everyone goes through, whether it's, it's Dr. Google that they're reading or social media or what's being published, you know, in whichever newspaper or media outlet they're reading, it can be very almost, it's not only just confusing, it can be very polarizing. So not only does did COVID worsen the number of individuals who may or may not be qualified to give good advice because there are actually physicians out there as well who offer very polarizing diets and ask people not to eat, say, vegetables, for example, and don't eat spinach and don't eat this, whatever it might. So we have to be careful. And the way I do it is I first establish what a person enjoys eating so that I can help tap into, you know, using the psychology of eating, tap into what they're going to be willing to do. But while doing that, I'm also listening for the unhealthy foods in it this is a great example. People know that if they consume dairy, yogurt could be h- helpful because it has probiotics. And people get a fruited yogurt because they've also heard blueberries have antioxidants. But a fruited yogurt, a half cup can have eight teaspoons of sugar in it, of added sugar. So if they do consume dairy, I advise them the best type of dairy to get or there are non-dairy alternatives as well, but get it plain. Add cinnamon and blueberries, totally different sugar structure to that. And those little things that people don't know how I try to listen for flaws they may be making, not by, you know, not really thinking they're eating healthy food, but they actually are not. So cutting through what they're willing to eat, advising them on tweaking the best personalized diet for them that would work. I actually personally don't like eliminating entire food groups unless someone has a food allergy on tolerance, but I do talk about the source of food, the quality of the food that they're getting if they have access. For this reason, I went to some dollar stores recently to see if they kept canned salmon because if you do consume can uh, you do consume salmon that is actually a source for you and it's you know far less expensive than buying a side of salmon at a fancy supermarket so it's about finding the ways that people can make better choices with what they have available and tweaking what they eat so say someone does not eat seafood then i'm going to be looking at if maybe you're vegetarian you know, let's look at the beans and the lentils and the vegetables where you can get a complete diet and where can you get your protein and your healthy fats from. So meeting the person where they're at, tweaking what they're willing to tweak and listening really very intently for those simple errors they may be making. Or, you know, my my patient Paul, who was Drinking a 20-ounce cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee, quarter cup of creamer, highly processed creamer, plus eight teaspoons of sugar. That taught me early on a simple thing that you can change. And I think it's finding a couple of habits that someone can change one at a time so that they can sustain it and build it into their lifestyle.
0: Now, I love that you also say spices are the hidden secret in your kitchen pharmacy. And maybe that comes from your unique training as a chef, because you know how to work with spices. Oftentimes when I'm asking people to increase what I say, increase your vegetable vocabulary, because most of us eat from the <laughs> <like> same <laughs> vegetables and they say, well, it tastes terrible because you know they're just steaming bok choy by itself and they don't like the taste. How do you help? And I'm sure in your book that you have out, and then also the one you have coming up, is working with spices and teaching people how to make flavorful, healthy foods part of what you are an advocate for. I love food. And I don't like the fact that people
1: assume healthy food has to taste terrible. And healthy food does not need to taste like, you know, uh, tastes terrible we can actually find really delicious ways and spices if you just get a pure spice not a blend because blends sometimes have added sodiums and other um, preservatives but if you just get a pure spice it's pretty much zero calorie it's flavorful it's rich in antioxidants and it's rich in plant polyphenols so there are many ways that we can add spices and herbs to flavor up our food but not be adding extra calories unhealthy ingredients by flavoring the food you can turn something as bland as a piece of tofu or a piece of cauliflower Uh, salmon has flavor but you can actually make a delicious marinade to really boost the flavor of that and make it even more interesting so whether it is you know your choice is poultry or your choice is tofu whatever it might be you can really boost the flavor of these some of the vegetables that people find really boring you know i have this recipe for a miso dressing and it takes Mm. fermented soybean paste miso with a little bit of avocado oil and some seasonings and you brush it on your vegetables before you roast them and literally you can turn your cauliflower into something really delicious because cauliflower super healthy but you know not very tasty on its own can be super bland but if you start adding in those spices and herbs and if you have access to fresh herbs these are that you know even more power to you. But if you don't, you know, frequently from, I'm only able to get some dried spices, even that makes a difference. Just use half the quantity in dried spices because they are much more concentrate than the fresh herbs. But these are ways that you can turn that vegetable into something not only delicious but something you want to eat again your family wants to eat and experiment with it a little bit you know try a few spices at a time and they will last a long time and really change the impact of your
0: food. I think it's so true. I was blessed to have a mother who was very interested in food as well. And as her third career in life actually went back and went to chef school and she trained in traditional French cooking in Manhattan. And then she went and trained in whole foods cooking with Anne-Marie Colvin. And so I had the pleasure of eating delicious, healthy food growing up. Of course, I went off to medical school and then I came back and told her, mother, we heal with steel and basically (laughs) poo-pooed everything that she (laughs) had taught me. Of course, I came full circle many years later when my own health was in the toilet. And then she never said, I told you so, but I was able to kind of pull out, go get cookbooks for this healthy food that I was familiar with. For a lot of people, it's very foreign. One of the challenges that I had, because gluten was a big staple of my diet, was getting rid of the gluten. And you mentioned earlier that there really aren't whole food groups that you tell people to eliminate. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the inflammatory foods that you might talk with people about what would those be? Would it include gluten and dairy? And what does the data show on that regarding mental health? Yes. So I think that's an excellent
1: point. And even when it comes to gluten, it's the source of the gluten, it's the product. I have many patients tell me they've traveled to Italy, they've traveled to Europe, they're able to eat the bread and the pasta in Europe, and they come back and they cannot tolerate what's in the US. So sometimes it's also the source, the way the crops are grown, the way the products are made. But another component of this is that gluten can be inflammatory for for people in mental health as well, especially for conditions like anxiety. We may sometimes do a short-term elimination of gluten products and see how the person does. Some of what I have to factor in there is what types of gluten that someone is eating. For example, an artisanal loaf of sourdough bread that has a fermented starter is very different from a processed, uh, sliced loaf of bread in the supermarket, which is highly processed. And if you went away, get uh, to you know, vacation for two weeks and came back, it would be fine. It would be sitting on your, your kitchen counter completely fine. And you think to yourself, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because it's kind of filled with a lot of preservatives and ingredients that are not great for your body or your brain specifically. So yes, gluten can be very inflammatory for conditions. In mental health. And it is definitely something for us to look more carefully at in a nuanced way to see should we eliminate this? Should we test it? Should we check? Also, there are some people with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So they may not have, they may not have full-blown celiac disease, but they may have other sensitivities to be aware of. But other inflammatory foods definitely include dairy. Not everyone can tolerate it, and the source can be. Not only disinflammatory for people, if they do consume dates, many people can also be lactose intolerant. So there it's, you know, should we find an alternative for you. But then there are things like artificial sweetness. Even some of the natural artificial sweetness can actually drive conditions like anxiety. The nitrates in processed meats, people think, oh, well, I'll get a healthy version of this processed meat but the nitrates can actually worsen depression. So it's all these little factors that are contained in the food that we have to watch out for. The obvious one is sugar. I mean, I think that, that most of us are not confused that sugar is not good for the brain, but it can also affect our long-term cognition. It can impact the size of neurons in the brain. This has been shown in neuroimaging. So sugar is not just you know about your waistline Or uh, type 2 diabetes, it really does impact your brain pretty significantly too.
0: Yes. And, you know, unfortunately, I think most people think, oh, I don't have a diabetes, so I don't have a sugar problem. But would (laughs) you agree that most of us, especially as I've been traveling the world, I'm really seeing, you know, when, so one of my treats that I like, don't tell anyone, (laughs) just between you and me, when I do have a treat is I love (laughs) caramel popcorn. And so every now and then I will have some. And when I was yep. in Africa, first off, I could hardly find caramel popcorn. You can't really find that many sweet yep. treats. And secondly, yep. when I did find it, it had this scanty amount of not very sweet caramel on it. And my taste buds yep. were looking for that sugar shock, sugar. candy yep. coated American yep. caramel corn. Caramel popcorn. And it, yep. it was very interesting to me how, you know, it's no wonder that we have the the epidemic. And when I got back to America and I went into the convenience store at the airport and there were hundreds of different sweet treats and compared to Africa, you know, you might have a few biscuits that really aren't sweet. So How do you help people? Re- I think that a lot of people don't get that they have a sugar problem if they don't have diabetes. How do you help them understand that?
1: One thing, explaining the metabolism to them and what sugar actually does to the brain. Because most people, like you, to your point, you know, think, oh, well, I don't have diabetes in my family. I'm fine. I can, I can eat the, as much, you know, candy and other treats that I want or ice cream and, you know, all the favorites that people have. But explaining that connection to them and then explaining things around how metabolism is related to mental health. You've heard and have seen how Alzheimer's is being called type 3 diabetes. There are these connections that people may see in the news or read, but they don't really understand. But I find that when, like going back to when when you explain to a person that four grams of sugar is one teaspoon and when you look at a food label convert that because our food labels are in grams and most people don't know how to understand that because when we cook and bake in the in the united states we actually use pounds and ounces so just uh-huh. giving people simple tips like that to convert the sugar then they see 8 teaspoons of sugar in a small blueberry yogurt and they realize wow now I understand I probably should still eat those components if they eat dairy, but actually they're now dairy-free alternatives with probiotics, which is great, like coconut yogurts as well. So guiding people towards a plain version and understanding how to convert sugar becomes key. And then also asking them what they're consuming because you know you had an awareness about the popcorn. You, you were looking for it. You understood that. Almost that body intelligence, which is I was looking for more sugar. Sometimes people are not realizing that because they just mm-hmm. on a constant diet of sugar. And our food is so laden with high fructose corn syrup in the U.S. and even savory foods have sugar. So you know, ketchup, store bought pasta sauces, salad dressings all have a ton of added sugar. So I think number one, you have to bring it to someone's awareness, and that can be a challenge because someone may not, a person may not realize they are so relying. On the sugar. Even our fast food french fries in the United States have sugar added. They have sugar added to make them hyper palatable. And research has shown that when these foods are hyper palatable, they tap into into our craving cycles. And then, of course, you want to upsize. Then you upsize your order to the bigger size, you eat all of it. And then you also want the soda that goes with it. So it's this. Even even talking to someone about how they make an order and then breaking down for them why that's happening in their brain can be useful. Now, it may take longer to change that habit, but you know it becomes important to right.
0: to do that. So do you think that sugar is the biggest threat to our mental health? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's one ingredient, to be honest. I think it's huge. Okay.
1: I think it's huge because I have literally seen people come gently, i've seen two things i've seen people suddenly give up sugar and become panicked like develop anxiety and because their body is really withdrawing from the sugar but i've also seen people do it gently almost like you would do a detox protocol you know with alcohol if you were treating someone in a hospital bringing them slowly off sugar and seeing the positive effects on their mental health are hugely powerful
0: Definitely. I remember reading a book uh, when I was younger from my mother's bookshelf. Again, my mom was ahead of her time called Sugar Blues. And the guy Mm -hmm. described his journey from being overweight and having myriad health problems and depression to getting off sugar and his miraculous cure. And again, I went to medical school and and thought I knew better, and it was all about (laughs) drugs and surgery. And and now I've come (laughs) full circle. And I'm sure people can read more in your book, This Is Your Brain on Food, about all of these interactions and maybe get insight into how they can start Changing their diet. You have an amazing free gift for everyone that talks about the gut brain romance, a guide on how to eat your way out of mental problems, available for everyone listening. We will have the link in the show notes. So click the link and download that free gift from Dr. Naidu. What what will they learn there? Well, for one thing, they will understand one of the things we've spoken about,
1: which is how the gut brain connection is related to the food-mood connection because people think about, they've heard about the gut and brain, they've heard about the gut microbiome, but they haven't always connected it to mental well-being. And so they will they will see that depicted in the chapter and be able to understand why this is a powerful tool as one of the mechanisms to help improve um, how you're feeling emotionally.
0: Awesome. I love it. Sounds like you make it very simple. And I think that sometimes we make dietary change complicated. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. that you make it simple. Dr. Naidu. this has been a great conversation. I love that you are integrating all these aspects of mental health, food preparation, nutrition into easy to access and implement tools for everyday people, uh, because that's what all of us are. And yes. I'm wondering if you can tell everyone, in addition to downloading your free guide, where they can find out more about what you offer and what you have available. Thanks so much,
1: Ken. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You know, you can find me at umanaidumd.com. Always have a free download for you there that can enhance just your understanding of mental well-being using food. Follow me on social media at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O, which is at Dr. Uma Naidu, And I also have a brand new course released at Mass General Hospital, Harvard Medical School, to actually train clinicians to use nutrition and mental health. It's a CME-based program for medical professionals, nurses, psychologists, social workers, A lot of mental health individuals, but you know, if you're a physician who is interested in learning how to implement nutritional psychiatry into your practice, it's a certification in nutrition and mental health. And you can find that either sending my team a DM on social media, it can be found at the Mass General Hospital Psychiatry Academy. And you will find the course housed there as well.
0: Awesome. Thank you for all those wonderful resources and for the work that you're doing. It's very brave and courageous to go against the mainstream. So (laughs) I'm so glad that I have fellows on the front lines who are doing the same thing to really advance the knowledge for everybody so that they can improve their health now and don't have to wait for medicine to catch up with science. So thank you so much for joining us and for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It really was fun to talk with you. And thank you for joining us today for another episode of The Hormone Prescription. I hope that you loved Dr. Nadu's discussion as much as I did, and that you will go download her free guide and get started Download her book, Your Brain on Food, and start to make some changes that can move your health and your hormones into the positive direction that you deserve. And I will see you next week for another episode. Until then, peace, love, and hormones, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. I know that incredible vitality occurs for women over 40 when we learn to speak hormone and balance these vital regulators to create the health and the life that we deserve.